You're listening to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. In this episode, we chat about outcomes associated with anal sacculectomy in dogs with massive apocongruent anal sac adenocarcinoma with our guest, Maureen Griffin. Welcome to Veterinary Vertex. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Sarah Wright. Today, we have Maureen joining us. Maureen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us here today. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm excited to, to speak about this, um, this research and really appreciate um, the invite to, to speak on this podcast. Awesome. Thanks so much. So we'll go ahead and get started. So during my small animal rotating internship, some clinicians would say, don't present a case to me unless you've done a retinal exam and a rectal exam. And a thorough physical examination is very important, especially rectal examinations. And many small animal clinicians have performed a rectal exam, felt a mass, and then felt that pit in their stomach, knowing that neoplasia is a potential differential. Your manuscript in JAVMA discusses the short and long-term outcomes associated with anal sacculectomy in dogs with massive apocrine gland anal sac adenocarcinoma, which I'll therefore abbreviate as AGASACA for brevity. And as a student, let me tell you, I was really happy there was an abbreviation because saying that term over and over again is quite the tongue twister. Can you give our listeners a bit of background on AGASACA? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so as you mentioned, um, Agasaca or apocrine gland anal sac adenocarcinoma um, is a malignant tumor of the anal sac um, in dogs and the most common tumor type that we see of the anal sac in dogs. Um, it does have a relatively high rate of metastatic disease, um, but thankfully the long-term survival um, is often possible for many cases that we see. Um, in terms of presentation, uh, most commonly we see this in middle-aged to older dogs, um, clinical signs that they often present with are, are largely associated with the primary tumor. So we can see swelling, kind of a mass effect of the perianal region. Um, some dogs have defecation changes like tenesmus. Um, some even have more scooting or seem to be irritated in their perianal region. Um, we can also see hypercalcemia and signs associated with that, um, secondary to perineoplastic hypercalcemia. Um, but in, in a lot of dogs also, um, as high as up to 50% or so, um, it's, it can be an incidental finding just on um, thorough rectal examination. So it's, it's very, it, that highlights the importance of doing rectal exams on all these dogs to try and find them when they're in an earlier disease stage. Um, in terms of diagnosis, uh, fine aspirate and cytology is usually kind of our go-to um, first line for um, getting a diagnosis. Um, and then staging is very important before moving forward with any treatment plan and determining a prognosis. And that includes um, a thorough rectal exam as, as we discussed, both to determine the extent of disease and to feel the contralateral anal sac, a small pr proportion of dogs do have bilateral disease, um, and also feel for any big lymph nodes within the pelvic canal. Um, lab work is also important. Again, some dogs do have hypercalcemia. Um, that's that's good to um, assess before um, moving forward with treatment. Um, and then staging um, should include both abdominal and thoracic imaging. Um, many dogs do have gross evidence of, of metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis, and the um, iliosacral lymph nodes are the most common site. Um, so the, the clinical staging system, I think that we all use most commonly is one, um, that was reported by Poulton and Brearley in, in 2007. And that does have an important, um, it has important connotations for both prognosis and, and treatment recommendations. Um, 
In terms of kind of prognostic indicators that we discussed, so, so stage is one of those um, those big ones as well, um, and that includes both tumor size um, and and that threshold of of what tumor size um, is prognostic is different in different studies, um, but um, has been shown to be important in many different studies. Um, and then you know any potential for lymph node mets or even distant mets um, influences prognosis as well. Um, um, treatment performed is also very important from a prognostic standpoint. And um, generally, we consider this to be a largely surgical disease. Um, and that includes removing both the primary tumor with a, a closed anal sacculectomy um, and also taking out any metastatic lymph nodes, if that's if that's feasible, is generally considered to be a first-line treatment um, with, with known improvement in outcomes with both of those procedures um, if they don't have more distant um, spread. Um, and outcomes, um, you know, again, survival, uh, survival times are, have been related to disease stage, um, in, in many different studies, um, but dogs that have lower stage disease, so smaller tumors without gross evidence of metastatic disease, um, with surgery, they can survive for several years. So in many cases, um, they, they can do very well from the standpoint of disease. This is an older population of dogs. Um, many of these are succumbing to different disease processes. Um, but with, with much larger tumors and metastatic disease, those outcomes have been reported to be not as robust. Um, though we do know that if, if we detect nodal metastasis and we remove those nodal mets, um, that we can also improve their outcomes and survival times. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a disease that has great relevance to surgeons, surgical oncologists, medical oncologists, um, even radiation oncologists. Um, and it's um, there's been a lot of great um, studies coming out um, uh, in the kind of more distant um, literature, but also recently um, that are really kind of helping to, to guide our discussions um, with owners on, on this disease. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. It's really important information. So something I'm just personally curious about I remember I reached out for you for a photo for social media promotion of your manuscripts. And the photo you sent me was of a pretty large size tumor. What's the largest size that you've seen in clinical practice? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, in the study um, that um, that we reported on, uh, the biggest tumor in that um, population was about 10 centimeters in maximal diameter on the basis of CT measurement. I would say the largest one that I've seen personally has gotten gotten up there, not quite that big, um, but somewhere kind of in that eight centimeter ballpark. Um, so they do get quite sizable from a primary tumor standpoint. Um, I think one thing that's very interesting, and we discussed a little bit about um, clinical signs in these dogs, and that many of them, um, for many of them, it's an incidental finding on rectal exam. Um, in this study on dogs that had massive tumors, um, about only about 50% of them had clinical signs that were reported at their initial presentation um, at, with a, a slightly greater proportion of those having clinical signs by the time they came to um, a referral hospital. Um, but it, I think it really goes to show that they can get to be quite large without obvious clinical signs noted um, by owners. Um, so again, one more kind of pointing towards the, the importance of doing a, a rectal exam for all of these um, patients. Yeah, that's fascinating that a dog can have these massive tumors and and not owners aren't picking up on or they're not presenting obvious enough clinical signs. What what breed of dog was that 10 centimeter mass in? Like that's most of an animal for some of the small breeds. Yeah, no, it was a Newfoundland, so definitely a large breed dog. 
Um, I think it's a great point to consider tumor size relative to dog size, and that's something that we historically have not characterized very well in veterinary medicine. Um, you know, the previously reported size cutoffs, cutoffs of prognostic significance for Agasaka um, have not been relative to body weight. Um, it's something we did try to quantify in our study on massive tumors um, by reporting the tumor volume compared to the body weight um, in this study. I would say, though, from a, a practical standpoint, um, in our study, the dog weights range pretty widely. So about seven kil uh, kilograms was the smallest to up to about 46 kilograms. Um, so that included some dogs like Bichons and Dachshunds and very small breed dogs. Um, and of note, you know, one of the Dachshunds had about an eight centimeter mass on CT. So we clearly do see very large primary tumors, even in small dogs. Wow, fascinating. Agasaka is not like the sexiest <laughs> of diseases that are out there for a surgeon or a, a fellow oncologist. Uh, what sparked your research interest in this specific disease? You clearly are passionate about it. It's not just a manuscript for you. you you're interested in this topic. Oh, thank you. Um, absolutely. Yeah. During, I would say during my residency fellowship and now also as a, a clinician at, at Penn, we do see these tumors with, with a fairly high frequency, um, I would say. And it's it's a disease in which surgery has a has an important role, um, even in the setting of metastatic disease. And, and we know that dogs can have relatively good outcomes with treatment despite that high incidence of metastasis. Um, so it's really been largely through a lot of discussions about clinical cases and scenarios and and then looking to the literature for answers and new data on some of those those questions that come up have have kind of sparked some of these research interests for me um, on this tumor type and um, in determining these additional questions that that have yet to be answered. So, you know, for this study specifically, um, thinking about what is the role of surgery in the subset of dogs that have, um, that do have more negative prognostic indicators. So those dogs that are kind of on the extreme end of that T2 stage and the TNM stage um, with really massive primary tumors. Um, but there's a lot of other, I think, really important research questions to answer. Um, there's some great work um, coming out on more, you know, sentinel lymph node mapping. And are, are there ways that we can detect early metastatic disease? Does removing metastases in those more subclinical settings improve outcomes? Um, so I think there's a lot of really important um, additional research um, left to be done. Um, and I'm excited to see um, what, what our colleagues continue to, to come out with. Yeah, you know, Maureen, that segues perfectly into my next question, which I'll re or paraphrase just a little bit. You sort of answered what inspired you to write this manuscript, but maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit more about how in your team, how do you, how do you have those discussions that identify these knowledge gaps? You said earlier, like, well, there's all these other ideas and maybe we'll go on to this portion next. Like, how does that happen? Does that happen at the OR table? I would say that, um, you know, th so this, for example, this research idea um, specifically developed during my residency training um, with my mentors and my colleagues on the on the paper. Um, we had a, a bit of a run of these massive Agasaka tumors that were coming our way. And that that sparked the discussion. You know, owners were asking, how, what are how, what can I expect in terms of risk of complications for my dog um, and long-term outcomes um, for my dog that has this really, really big primary tumor and many of them had metastatic disease. 
And though we have some data to refer to, we don't really have anything looking specifically at this subset of dogs, um, kind of on the extreme side of, of that primary tumor size. Um, but subjectively, we felt like we were seeing a fairly low rate of postoperative complications, and at least in the short term, that these dogs were doing quite well. Um, so that kind of prompted the idea to, to get more cases together, do a multi-institutional study so that we could increase our case numbers. Um and, and really more statistically evaluate um, the outcomes of these dogs um, that do have primary tumors that are that are very large. Um, but I, I, a lot of them come just out of very similar, I would say, um, to that scenario where we see these clinical cases. Um, it, it sparks discussions amongst colleagues. Um, you know, a lot of it is um, kind of that multimodality, multidisciplinary oncology um, setting where, you know, maybe with the medical oncology and radiation oncology team, um, unusual case presentations kind of amongst us and discussing some of these nuances to different diseases, we find that none of us know the answer to something and go back through the literature and the answer doesn't exist. Um, and then that kind of prompts us to say, this is a clinically relevant question. We're all asking this question. This could make a difference for our patients if we have this understanding. Um, how can we put together a study to, to figure this out? Yeah, I agree. I would say a lot of the questions that I found, like how do you find these questions to answer, to try and design a study to answer them, come from, as you said, for this one, clients. Right, mm -hmm. Clients want to know, is my horse going to go back to racing? What's the prognosis in my world? And the other one would be at conferences. You know, if people are asking you a question at a conference, they're interested in your in your subject already. And a lot of times those are like just the, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And there, there's your next research project. Exactly. Absolutely. I completely agree. So moving on to talk more about you, Maureen. So you're a board-certified veterinary surgeon, and you also completed a fellowship in surgical oncology. How did your advanced training prepare you to write this manuscript? Um, thank you. Um, I, I feel very fortunate to have had um, really incredible training and, and mentorship in surgery and surgical oncology during both um, my residency and fellowship. Um, the, the training I received, I would say, involved not only surgical technique, case management, um, just knowledge base and, and understanding of multimodal approach to cases, you know, really how does surgery fit into the overall plan for a patient. Um, but working with my mentors and seeing their approach to clinical questions also really instilled in me, I think, an ability to think critically about cases and clinical scenarios in which there is a knowledge gap um, and, and to help try to formulate that into a research project. So uh, that's all been very much, I think, learned and passed on from my mentors. So I'm very grateful to them for that guidance. Um, and I think to to speak further to the importance that I've learned about collaboration. And that's been a huge aspect of my training. Um, you know, I couldn't do any of this without the multidisciplinary and multi-institutional case discussions. I, you know, as you mentioned at conferences, collaborating, discussing with, with colleagues um, that also have a similar research interest um, to really work together to, to start to answer some of these questions. Um, and with that, I, I would love to give a shout out to a lot of my collaborators on this study from, from UC Davis and OVC that were um, hugely impactful in um, helping to formulate um, this project and, and work together to, to, um, to, to come up with this manuscript um, and, and find these results. Yeah, it's always important to have that collaboration. It's something that's a really common theme throughout our podcast episodes. Our next question is very important for our listeners. 
What is one piece of information that a veterinarian should know before discussing this topic with the client? In other words, what piece of information would make their communication more effective? Um, that's a great question, and I might cheat a little bit. Um, I think there's a couple important aspects to consider. Um, so one, and we touched on this a little bit already, but is is just the importance of staging for for all of these dogs, and regardless of primary tumor size. You know, this study was really focusing on dogs that have massive anal sac tumors, um, and many of them do have metastatic disease. But I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, there's some other great papers that have come out recently, um, one by um, Dr. Janssen's and Dr. Jones um, within the past year that showed that even small tumors have a clinically important rate of metastatic disease. And that's going to influence our treatment discussion with owners um, and as well as potential prognosis, um, you know, surveillance, post-operative adjuvant therapy. So um, it's, it's really important to do thorough staging in all of these dogs. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is, is regards to, um, prognosis. So dogs do have the potential for really prolonged outcomes and survival times, a relatively low risk of surgical complications, even for these really big, um, kind of scary looking primary tumors, they can still do very well, um, from a surgical standpoint with a low risk of major complications and, and still maintaining normal defecation. I think that's, um, that's a big scare to a lot of owners, but in this study, even with massive tumors, um, none of the dogs had long-term defecation issues like fecal incontinence, um, or anal stricture, stenosis, tenesmus. Um, so all dogs had long-term good um, defecation function. Um, and um, that even in dogs with, so basically even in dogs with large tumors and nodal metastatic disease, it's it's really worth a discussion about surgery, um, even in those stage two to three cases. And they can have good outcomes, both short-term and potential for, for robust outcomes as well, long-term outcomes. Well, congratulations to your team. You've added a lot of new information for owners and, and other surgeons as well. Uh, to help our patients. So thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, in order yeah, in order to even get into veterinary school, get through veterinary school, a residency, a fellowship, <laughs> a faculty member, you have to have a lot of determination uh, and grit. Where did your inspiration or determination come from? Well, thank you. Um, that's a great question. I think it's hard to kind of put a finger on where you learn some of those um, important aspects. And it's something that I'm still, you know, modifying and learning um, from, from mentors and friends. But um, I would say that, you know, one thing that I can point back to um, is um, kind of somewhat of an athletic background that I had playing, playing soccer um, growing up and through college um, and then kind of going on to, to coach in, in some capacity in college as well, really taught me a great deal about teamwork, leadership, um, mental toughness, kind of dealing with adversity. Um, and I'm very grateful for those experiences. Um, and then, you know, of course, I, I would be remiss to not mention the family, the friends that have been just this incredible support network that I owe a great deal of gratitude to. And that really includes the incredible, incredible mentorship that I've received in the veterinary field throughout my career and throughout my training. And those people continue to be amazing resources and support to me. Mentorship is also another common theme that we explore in our podcast episodes. So that's great to hear. And we love too that you're hopefully inspiring the next generation as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. To our listeners, you can read Maureen's manuscript on our journal website and in print Javma. 
I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to.